In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Welcome back back to the True Life Life Podcast. Podcast. We have today the one and only Dr. David Solomon, creative curriculum leader and esteemed scholar with a passion for unraveling the intricate tapestries of history and faith. Looking forward to our conversation today, David. Can you tell the people a little bit more about you? Sure, absolutely. Oh, just excuse me one second. I got a cough. Okay. Um, So I've been a professor of medieval literature, religion, and culture for um, 30 years. And currently I am at Christopher Newport University in Newport News, Virginia, where I am the director of research on creative activity. Uh, I also continue to teach in our honors program and our museum studies program. And I've written a bunch of books. My most recent book is on the seven deadly sins. And uh, we're in the midst here of a really cool conversation about mysticism. Yeah, today we're digging in to Richard Roll. Yes, so Roll fits into the, the 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 scheme of what we've been talking about. He's a he's another one of the 14th century English mystics. Um, so he's living just a little bit before Marjorie Kemp, who we discussed last time, um, and right around the same time as Julian Norwich, who we're going to talk about next week. So they all are, they, along with another Englishman named Walter Hilton, the four of them are kind of the, um, the, the epitome of 14th century English mysticism. And Roll's story is really kind of interesting. I, I became really interested in him in graduate school. Uh, I'd never heard of him before. Um, he um, is often referred to as Richard Roll, Hermit of Hampol. Um, because he did end up leading a hermit's life, which we can talk about, in uh, Hampole in England. Um, he lived from about 1290 to 1349 and um, is well-known and, and prolific. Um, he wrote uh, many, many books, but one of the things that he is most well-known for is he's one of the first religious writers to really write in the vernacular. He wrote in Middle English. Um, he wrote a lot of work in Latin, but he did write some work in Middle English, which was the vernacular tongue at the time, so that normal, everyday folks would be able to to read it. Um, the book that we're talking about today is not the case, because it was written in Latin. Um, it's called The Fire of Love, and the, uh, the Latin title Incendium Amoris, and uh, it was translated into Middle English, um, and was one of the one was a fairly popular book and it's time and um it's it's an interesting text because it's a blend of a handbook written specifically for someone interested in leading a mystical life 
but it also is very autobiographical and tells us a lot about Roll himself. Um, it is a real contrast um, with The Cloud of Unknowing, which we talked about uh, a couple of weeks ago, because The Cloud of, knowing, of Unknowing was all about knowing God and, and intellectually understanding God. Roll is much more interested in the physical response, as was Marjorie Kemp. Um, and probably the two senses that are most important in role are, are hearing and feeling. Um, so he talks about feeling that fire of love in his heart. And oftentimes throughout the book, he talks about hearing music, hearing melodious sounds. And that is oftentimes the way that he experiences the, um, the divine. Um, his own story is really kind of interesting. Um, he uh, is Oxford educated, um, apparently spent time in Paris as well, came back to England then and lived on the estate of a guy named John Dalton and chose to lead a, a, the life of a hermit. Um, now, a hermit is someone who decides basically to separate from the world most often for spiritual or religious reasons. Um, it is not the same thing as um, someone who leads a cloistered life. So, you know, sometimes people think hermits are people who live on their own and never see anybody. Um, that's not necessarily the case. They do live on their own, but they oftentimes do see people, and 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 Roll did. In fact, he was uh, the counselor for uh, a, a congregation of nuns at a, a Cistercian monastery not too far from where he was uh, residing. And it's to one of those nuns, it seems like he's writing um, this particular book. Um, but in recent years, he has um, taken quite a beating um, in scholarship. And most, the, the, the real reason for that is something that we discussed when we were talking about Marjorie Kemp, is in the last 20, 30 years, there's been a tremendous um it's not really a resurgence, but a, a surgence in, um, in the study of uh, female mystics and looking at a feminist approach to mysticism in the Middle Ages. And Roll is um, pretty unabashedly, particularly in this work, a misogynist. Um, and so, you know, oftentimes people are turned off by that today and look at it and and I always, you know, I acknowledge that when I teach role. I mean, it's there. That's obviously who he was. Um, but we also got to understand it's the 14th century. Um, it's a different time and place. And uh, so he tells us at one point, we can talk about it. It's one of the great passages in the book where he explains his own experience with women and basically what uh, what, what put him off women for the rest of his life. Um, but the, the book itself, and I... I, I went through as I did with Marjorie Kemp, just to pick out some things that I thought might be of interest. Um, you know, it, it, it's a curiosity. As I say, it was written in Latin. It was not written in Middle English. And yet in the, um, the prologue to it, he said that he writes the book not for philosophers or wise men, but he writes for the ignorant and untaught. But that doesn't scan because the ignorant and untaught wouldn't have been able to read Latin. So it's a curious thing. We don't really know what's going on here and who his intended reader is. Yeah, it, it's interesting to have that dichotomy there. Maybe it's maybe it's an attempt to, you know, translation and interpretation. It's kind of a interesting. Yeah, to be sure. Um, you know, and and you you mentioned dichotomy. I mean, this book is filled with dichotomies. It's filled with 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 polarities. Really, mm. um, he is very clear about living in this world or living in the spiritual world, um, living the spiritual life or leading uh, what we would now call a secular life. In fact, he he says at one point in the opening chapter, love of God and love of this world can't reside together in the same soul. Um, he really is um, sold on the idea that in order to truly be devoted to God, be devoted to the divine, you have to separate yourself from this world. 
And for him, that meant physically. Um, and of course, this is following in a great tradition that Je Desert Fathers are doing that um, early on in the church. But, um, you know, it, 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 what I think is really um, kind of different for him is that, as I say, the book is filled with all these sort of dichotomies, contradictions. You know, I'm writing it for the ignorant and untaught, but I'm writing it in Latin and, you know, parentheses, they can't read Latin. Um, he says, you know, the, the, the mystery, he calls it, of, of the mystical life, he said, is hidden from most people. It's only really accessible to a few. Um, and so is the point of the book to instruct us on how to lead this life? Um, I don't know. Uh, you know, is it meant for, for folks who are leading a secular life or is it written for folks who are already engaged in this kind of a religious existence? It seems more the latter than the former. Um, but still, a lot of what he talks about is really kind of interesting. Um, you know, he mentions that again later on in the book when he says, um, I'm not saying that every man should do this. Mm. So, you know, he's he's clear that this is not something that everybody's going to be able to accomplish or that everybody even should try. Uh, you know, there's a reason why um, some folks in our culture choose this kind of an existence, and they still do. Um, they continue to do, and I'm not just talking about folks who enter monasteries and convents, but, um, you know, there was a, a story several years ago um, that I that I share with my students whenever we do Richard Roll. I still have the cutting here from the New York Times, and it was uh, a piece in the Times. I don't know what year this was, because sadly I didn't put the year, um, but uh, a, a gentleman in upstate New York was going to be consecrated as a hermit. Um, and this was a ceremony that was going to that he was going to experience, which essentially um, was quite similar to the uh, ceremony, the, the 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 religious ceremony that nuns and, and monks go through, where they essentially die to this world. Um, but you know, he even mentions in this in this little article that was in the Times, um, he's a Benedictine monk. This guy was. Um, he lives at his solitary hermitage. Um, he says he spends 20% of his time as a staff member of the church. And he also works as a chaplain at an alcohol and drug abuse center. So they're not cloistered, right? right. Um, but he also notes that he says few people are called to this vocation, um, noting that there are only a couple of dozen hermits in the United States. Most famous was Thomas Merton, the Trappist monk, was a, was a noted uh, hermit. Um, so it, 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 it was really interesting. Um, because, you know, my students will often say, well, no one lives like that anymore. And then I whip this out and say, oh, yes, they do. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, not many and not a lot, but there are people who do this. And um, by and large, I think that the way that they are regarded is, is really one of two ways. I mean, folks who are faithful and spiritual have tremendous respect for what people like this are doing. And folks who are non-believers um, find it an oddity and don't understand it. Um, but you know, this is all part and parcel of of, of what Roll's talking about throughout the throughout his text. I mean, he stresses, as I said, that all everything's not intellectual. Hmm. You have to experience life. But he's very, very uh, strong on the virtue of humility. We have to be humble. He says, you're not going to experience this kind of, of life. You're not going to have this kind of mystical encounter with the divine if you aren't steeped in humility. And he, he, he repeats this over and over again in a variety of different ways. Um, one of the other strongest things that he talks about throughout the book is the conflict between appearance and reality. Mm. The way the world including people, seem to us and the way that it all really is. Um, and in particular, because he's writing just on the cusp of the Reformation, he's taking on a lot of the so-called holy people who he sees as being corrupt. Um, and he says, you know, they, they only seem to be holy. Just be careful, 
right? Um, and so that's why he chose, he said, not to pursue uh, a life within the ecclesiastical hierarchy because he just didn't see that as being the most productive uh, way for him of, of reaching, reaching the divine. It sounds like we're talking about his idea of anchor, anchoress. Yeah, it, it, it is a type of an, of an anchorite experience, of an anchoress experience. Um, Julian Norwich, who we'll talk about next week, is an anchorite. Um, and so we can sort of, next week, we can go over what the differences are between all these terms. Um, because it is a little confusing, because we don't, I mean, anchorite is not a, not a term that we hear very often anymore. And there are people who engage in that life as well still today. Um, you know, fewer, fewer to be sure than, than once did, but, um, it is not that unusual. Yeah. yeah. Early in the discussion, we talked about maybe some of his, um, his ideas towards women. Yeah. And you had a story to share about that. Yeah. So <laughs> he tells us quite clearly in the fire of love about what happened to him. Um, and if you'll indulge me, I'll read you the, the two Please. paragraphs where he, he tells us his story. He says, there was a time when I was rebuked quite properly by three different women. One rebuked me because in my eagerness to restrain the feminine craze for dressy and suggestive clothes, I inspected too closely their extravagant ornamentation. So he you know, and and read what you will between the lines here. So he saw a woman who was dressed in a flashy kind of way, what he saw as flashy, and he, uh, as he says, inspected too closely the ornamentation. Um, does that mean, I, I don't know what that means. You can take it as you want. Um, he says, she said I ought not to notice them so as to know whether they were wearing horned headdresses or not. I think she was right to reprove me, he says. Another rebuked me because I spoke of her great bosom as if it pleased me. She said, what business is it of yours, whether it's big or little? She too was right. The third jokingly took me up when I appeared to be going to touch her somewhat rudely. I mean, so, you know, clearly this is, uh, you know, not, not appropriate for the, the Me Too generation. <laughs> um, because he says, and perhaps had already done so. So he's not even sure if he had touched her rudely, because maybe I did. But she says to him, calm down, brother. It was as if she had said, it doesn't go with your office of hermit to be fooling with women. She too deservedly made me feel uncomfortable. Of course, people today would say it was really the reverse. I ought to have held off rather than to have behaved this way. So he does say, you know, this was not good. When I came to myself, and I love that phrase, because he repeats it more than once in the book. When I came to myself, it's this this sense of of self realization, of of reflection, and realizing what you what you've done. It says, when I came to myself, I thank God for teaching me what was right through their words, and for showing me a more pleasant way than my previous one, so that I might cooperate more fully with Christ's grace. I'm not going to put myself in the wrong with women henceforward. Then he says, a fourth woman, fourth woman, with whom I was in some way familiar, did not so much rebuke me as despise me when she said, you are no more than a beautiful face and a lovely voice. You have done nothing. I think it better, and this is his conclusion then, I think it better, therefore, to dispense with whatever their particular contribution to life is, than, rather than to fall into their hands, hands which know no moderation, whether loving or despising. So, you know, it's, and, and then he goes on to say, these things happened because I was seeking their salvation, not because I was after anything improper. It sounds like a little bit of a, of a, of a over justification and, and, and rationalization. So, you know, it, it, I think it's interesting. I mean, it's, 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 it's somewhat humorous. I mean, given our situation today, it's not that funny anymore. Um, you know, you, you hear about these kinds of situations all the time, but his conclusion is, that you know, I should just stay away from women entirely. He says, you know, I I know they they've made some kind of particular contribution to life. It's not worth it. I'm staying away. Um, and so it, that that misogynistic approach to his existence, you know, really permeates all of the work, and um, it 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 just has an interesting 
uh, it serves as an interesting take on attitudes in the 14th century. Um, you know, I often show my students, there's this wonderful flow chart, which um, I wish I could share with you somehow. It, 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 it's out of a fantastic book by James Brundage called Law, Sex, and Christian Society in Medieval Europe. Um, it's basically a book about law in the Middle Ages. And he has this great flow chart where he talks about, um, he calls it the sexual decision-making process. Um, and basically, um, it's a flow chart that almost everything ends with stop, it's a sin. Um, and there are very few kind of, you know, exceptions to this. And the exceptions are, do you want a child? Um, and if you answer yes, then I'll tell you where you go. But if it's no, it's stop, it's a sin. Um, are you in church? Are you naked? Is it daylight? Is it Saturday? Is it Friday? Is it Wednesday? Is wife menstruating? Is wife pregnant? Is wife nursing a child? Is it Lent? Is it Advent? Is it Whitson week? Is it Easter week? Is it a feast day? Is it a fast day? Is it a Sunday? And, you know, if, if you answer to the, all of those questions, yes, then it's going to lead you finally to go ahead, but be careful no fondling, no lewd kisses, no oral sex, no strange positions, only once. Try not to enjoy it. Good luck and wash <laughs> afterwards. Uh, and in many ways, that's the attitude towards sex in, 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 in the medieval church, right? And so, you know, we've got to remember that this is a time period when we're still living in the, the shadow of, of the writings of folks like St. Augustine, who basically vilified Eve and said she's responsible for the downfall of man. Um, and then along with her, that means all women. Mm. I don't know what that says about our wives, George. <laughs> they might want 10 minutes for a rebuttal. Yeah. Maybe, more than, maybe more than 10. <laughs> I think it speaks to the ideas of intricate connection. And in Roll's work, there's an intricate connection between the divine and human will. You know, how, how did he navigate that tension between personal agency and divine sovereignty? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's one that's a constant conflict, right? And I mean, I mean, it, it's been a constant conflict even throughout philosophy when we talk about the mind-body problem, yeah. right? I mean, for religious folks, there's always this, this issue, for mystics in particular, right. that we are spiritual beings trapped in a physical structure, right? And um, for, for many mystics, the goal is to have that spiritual side of you engage in the communion with the divine and experience ecstasy, right? Ecstasy, out of body, the Greek. Um, but Roll does acknowledge throughout his work that we are physical. I mean, he says, you know, I experience this. I got heat in my chest. I feel the fire of love. I hear music. Um, so, I mean, these are sensual experiences that he's having. Um, and to be sure, you know, Marjorie Kemp, who we talked about last time, is experiencing a lot of the same kinds of things, um, physical pain and, and, mm -hmm. and uh, physical joy as well. And so I think that this has always been a problem and it continues to be a problem for a lot of people today, um, whether we're talking about a, a spiritual sense of yourself or, or the intellectual sense right i mean it, it, in in the religious life and the monastic life it's a it's a way of of getting away from the physical world to somehow be closer to god by removing yourself from everyday life um and for you know a lot of academics myself included i mean that's what you know the, the university life is meant to emulate um, it's it's the same kind of existence. It's just you are not completely divorced from the secular world. You're still attempting to live in it. But I mean, as you mentioned, I think that there's there's always that that pull of physical will and physical need and physical desire. Um, it's what we talk about in the seven deadly sins with lust, right? And the fact that intellectually we know those are bad things. Hmm. Um, but because we are created the way that we are, um, it's difficult for us to navigate that. 
and to find some kind of a balance, right? And, and more difficult for some people than others, right? Um, which is, you know, the source of so many of our problems, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, often you hear them talk about self-emptying to divine, to attain divine union. What does that yeah. mean to you? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, it's, it's that scale, that, that journey that, that Evelyn Underhill talked about, mm. right? That, that journey through, you know, illumination, purgation, and then union. Um, so it, it, it's definitely, I mean, and all of the mystics talk about this as being progressive. Um, it isn't something which is just going to boom happen. Um, you know, the, Walter Hilton, who I mentioned earlier, I mean, his great work is called The Ladder of Perfection. Um, he's talking about moving up the ladder, right, to, to, to reach that goal. Um, and so it, it, there's so much of what's involved in these works is, is about process and about how you get there. And again, as we've talked about, it isn't necessarily focused on the, the goal um, because that's not what's important. And as Roll says, I mean, this isn't going to be for everybody. Right. People are going to engage in this and who aren't going to have that ultimate kind of experience. I mean, I, I know, you know, lots of, 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 of monks, lots of guys who are in the monastery and, you know, some of them are experiencing a, a spiritual kind of a, uh, life on a on a different level than others. Um, it isn't the same for everybody. Uh, and role is really clear to tell you that. So I think his fear is that you're going to pick up the book and say, OK, I'll read this book and I'll you know, have my divine union. And he's saying it doesn't work that way. In the context of his era, revolutionary or heretical? That's an interesting question because um, while he was alive, I don't know if revolutionary is the right word, but certainly not heretical. Once he died and the, Re and the Reformation hits, um, he is considered heretical by many. Uh, there was a movement afoot after he died to have him sainted. Um, in fact, the nuns at the monastery drew up the initial documents, and we have them, um, to present to the church to have him go through the first step of to, to sainthood. Um, it never happened. Uh, the Reformation hit, and, and all sorts of things occurred in England, of course, the English Reformation. Um, he was still... Um, recognized in the Anglican Church. I think he still is today on the Anglican calendar. Um, but I know that there is a, there's an image of Roll that's in a manuscript. Um, it was one of the only ones that we had for many years. In fact, it may be at the, the furthest piece of this book that I've got here. No, it's not. Um, and uh, it's from a manuscript, and it was an illustration of him and um, someone had had scratched out the face, you know, what mm. we do in, in yearbooks when we right. don't want to remember somebody. <laughs> right. And this is the way I mean, at the time, this was a way of trying to literally get rid of memory of somebody. Right. right? And so somebody had scratched out the face so that we wouldn't see him um, because he was considered somewhat heretical. Um, you know, I, I had mentioned several weeks ago um, this volume, which I pulled off the shelf here. This is the the Richard Roll of Hampel two volumes that I had wanted to have when I was in graduate school, had searched high and low for. I'd only seen library copies of it before. And then I found this copy on the shelf in a used bookstore in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I bought it. Um, it cost me, well, it cost me $60. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it was a big expense for right. me, especially in graduate school. But this is a, this came out 1895. Wow. Um, there are actually two volumes. But the really neat thing about the volume that I ended up buying, as I mentioned before, is it ends up it's the volume that was owned by Geraldine Hodgson, who became a scholar of Roll. Um, and she owned it. She dated it November 24th, 1917. Wow. Um, and it's it's got all sorts of things uh, pasted into it and, and notes, which are, are it's just really, really a cool thing to have. It's one of my uh, my favorite possessions is, is this volume um and it you know it's got the, the, the you know we talked about smell at one point you were talking, it's got the yep. smell of the the old the old book which is you know now what 130 years old um but uh it, it, it he was popular 
You know, he was popular and he became more popular in the early 20th century when folks like Evan Ar Evelyn Underhill and especially Hope Emily Allen, Hope Emily Allen came along and she edited his work um, and, and reprinted it for the first time in, in a long time um, in, a, in a really nice little volume and kind of there was a resurgence of interest in him. Um, a lot of work was attributed to him, which eventually we realized he didn't write. Um, one of the most famous uh, works in the Middle Ages is a very, very long piece called The Prick of Conscience. Um, it's very long. It's very dry. It's very laborious. <laughs> and um, for a long time, uh, it was attributed to him. In fact, in this volume, it is uh, included as one of the things that's in the book um, because we thought they thought it was his. Um, and later on, we realized uh, he didn't write it. Um, actually, we don't know who wrote it, but it wasn't him. Um, so, you know, there's still a lot of interesting work going on in this in this discipline. Yeah. What parallels do you think can be drawn between Richard Rule's mysticism and the broader medieval mystic tradition in Europe and beyond? I, th I think if there's one thing to point to, I would think it would be that the mystics tend to want you to make sure that if you're going to follow their example, if you're going to enter this kind of an existence, you need to be doing it because you want to go to God and not that you're trying to run away from the world. Um, and that continues to be a concern today within uh, the monastic world um, when when folks come in and take their initial vows in monasteries and convents you know one of the things that they that is really reviewed is why you're doing this um, we want to make sure that you're not running away from something but that you're actually running to god um, and I, I told you the story about my my friend the monastery and we had mm -hmm. the guy there who had been a nazi um, yeah. You know, he, he he was running from the world, but it was also determined that he was also running to God because he felt this this uh, this need to atone and and repent. And so, um, you know, he was an interesting case. But I mean, that was a concern throughout the Middle Ages, and it's still a concern today for folks who lead this kind of life. Is is the motivation? Why are you doing it? Right. And if if you're, you know, I, I think a lot of people especially today, right? We hear a lot today about people who just want to get away from the world, right? I've had enough of the world. I want to get away from the world. And so they try to do that in a variety of different ways, right? Maybe they'll move somewhere really remote. Um, maybe they'll just start to hunker down in their own houses and become hoarders. Uh, you know, we lots of different uh, flavors of this. And it's one thing to do that, but it's another thing to want to leave this world as the as the Desert Fathers did, because they felt that the din of this world was getting in the way of their spiritual longing and their spiritual desire. And um, and Roll talks about that, you know. I mean, but and it's interesting because the experiences that he has, where he says he hears music, he doubts mm. it. He says, "I don't know what's going on." I'm confused by this as, as Marjorie Kemp did the same thing. She didn't yeah. want to tell anybody. Right. And he, there's, there's one passage in the book where he actually um, went to somebody else and said, essentially, you know, do you hear this too? And a person said, no, <laughs> you know, I don't hear anything. And Roll realized that, that, you know, this was, this was an experience that he alone was having. And that although he could hear it, he said, with his physical ear, somehow it was happening internally in his in his spirit. But he swore that he heard the music. It's like the voice, the voice of your grandmother, of your grandmother that, you that you heard. Yeah, yeah, you know it. it it's and it, and it really feeds into his whole concern yeah. with appearance and reality, right? Mm -hmm. Is this really happening? Um, or, or is my mind playing a trick on me? Uh, is you know because and and you know with this kind of experience, oftentimes because it's not objective, there's often no way to really answer that question. Um, you have to go with with your your gut feeling.
Uh, and if you are someone who is a person of faith and a believer, you're probably going to going to swing one way. If you're a person who is not and who tries to rationally explain everything, you're going to swing the other way. It brings up this idea of the divine spark within the soul, whether it's a voice, whether it's something you see, whether it's something you act. Yeah. You know, how did he interpret this concept? It's it, it, it tends to be different for, for all of these writers. So they all experience this in a different way. I mean, Julian, who we'll talk about next week, I mean, in one scene in her in her book, I mean, Jesus comes down and sits on her bed and has a conversation with her. Um, you know, I mean, Roll never has that. He hears music. Um, he feels heat. Um, you know, Marjorie Kemp, it was more about this 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 overwhelming um, almost like a shadow over her soul, which made her weep and and made her ill because she couldn't she couldn't handle it. It was so overpowering. And so, you know, I, I really do think it tends to be different with a lot of the writers. Um, the fact that in this book, Roll calls it the fire of love, mm -hmm. the incendium amoris, of course, and we've got that that emblematic image throughout so much of Christian literature of of the heart on fire with 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 God's love, right? And that's really what Roll is uh, is going after here, and that's what he claims to have to have had. It's so beautiful to me, the. The way in which the spirit, the divine spark, creativity, all these things can reach into us and help us create outside of us. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it's part of, of what makes us human, right? Yeah. Yeah. Is, is our ability to be creative when it comes to things like that. It's, uh, it, is, it is, I mean, some would claim uniquely human. Um, the, the the ability to create, um, and 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 some would argue that it is it is the divine that's being channeled through you when you create, um, and some people will argue with that um, that you're be the divine or a muse or something spiritual, right? Something spiritual um, that is kind of speaking through you using you as an amanuensis, as we talked about, right? Yeah. He spoke quite a bit about nature and creativity, too, as well. Is that well? Yeah, well, I mean, and, and part of that is because he is, I mean, he's living out in the woods. <laughs> and um, and so the, the creative impulse, I think, is really something which is um, much more accessible when you are away from the din of humanity. Um, now that said, I know plenty of, of writers and artists who live in big cities and say that they get all their energy and that's where they do their best work. But I also know a lot of artists and writers and musicians who only can work when they go away. Um, you know, and oftentimes we hear, especially when it comes to musicians right. and, and authors, right? That they they really do their best work when they they leave, right? I, I was watching, um, you know, when you watch uh, Bohemian Rhapsody and hear about Queen, right? And yeah. the fact that you know they had to go and and leave and be in just some house somewhere, and that's where they did their their best work and composed composed that album. Um, and I've got you know certainly lots of author friends who do that as well. I you know I was when I was in graduate school and I think I've told you the story George so stop yeah. me if if I'm <laughs> being repetitive um I had just met my friend who's at the monastery I probably knew known him at that point for about 3 years and I remember I called him and I said I was I was just completely stuck I was working on my dissertation and the the spark had gone away and I just I was stuck mm -hmm. I didn't know what to do and I was ready to just toss the whole thing <laughs> And he said, why don't you come up to the monastery and spend a couple of days in the hermitage? Okay. So on the grounds of the monastery, and it's a huge, um, a huge uh, monastery, huge grounds. I, I don't know how, how many acres I'm just looking it up now sure. um, are on the Spencer monastery, but it is, it is uh, 2,300 acres. It's huge. Uh, but of course, only part of that is buildings. It's there's a lot of farmland, 
right. a lot of woodland. Um, and I'll never forget, I, I pulled up to the front of the, the main building and he was waiting for me and he got in my car and he said, all right, drive. <laughs> and so we drove down this long, thin road out into the, the woods on the property. And he's telling me, you know, turn left here, turn right there. And all of a sudden he said, stop. Okay. And he had told me, he said, you know, bring, bring your books, bring your stuff, bring some clothes for the weekend, that kind of thing. And we got out of the car and um, we walked through the woods, um, probably about a hundred yards, um, partially across this little stream. I remember there was a wooden uh, uh, tim piece of timber there that we walked across using it as a bridge. And out in the middle of nowhere there, there was a little hermitage. A little one room little house out in the middle of the woods and we went into it um no heat no running water um basically it was a bed and a desk and um he said all right he said you know i'll see you in a couple days and he left me there to work and you know as as it is a hermitage to reflect and think and contemplate and and so, you know, it was a taste of, of, of leaving the world. I mean, you know, this is before mm -hmm. cell phones, so it wouldn't have mattered, but I'm sure there's no cell service out there. There's no electricity. So, um, and I got to tell you, I mean, I stayed out there, I think for two or three nights, I can't remember if it was two or three. Um, but I do remember after the second day, you start to get a little, little loopy, um, because you are living away from everything now I, I i'm a jew from the bronx we don't camp we don't i mean you know we, we tried it thousands of years ago in the desert it sucked we're not doing it again um and so you know this was something which was not familiar to me and um it was an interesting experience and it was in many ways a kind of a little taste of what that life is like um it's very different from what we experience day to day out, quote unquote, in the world. Um, and it shows you how incredibly difficult it is to live in this world and mm -hmm. engage in that kind of intellectual, spiritual, creative activity because there's just so much noise. And being out in the hermitage for a couple of days, there's no noise out there. I mean, it is dead quiet. Um, and so, you know, as a result, you know, it made me think of when I lived in South Dakota, I knew a, a, a Lakota medicine man who invited me to come and do the sweat lodge. I did the sweat lodge twice out, out there on the res. And um, it's a similar kind of thing. Uh, it has a physical and a psychological effect on you that solitude and that physical um i don't know what the right word is physical it's 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 strenuous and and it sounds silly to say it's strenuous to just be by yourself in a one little room for a couple of days but it was especially for somebody like me who's such an extrovert um, nobody to talk to you don't see anybody um and you know, the, the sweat lodge was a similar kind of experience. Um, that one, um, very effective. Mm. Um, have you ever done a sweat lodge, George? No, but I spent some time in isolation tanks. Oh, did that two years ago. Yeah. Um, it's somewhat similar. Um, it's somewhat similar, mm. although the, the, the extreme heat, and the way that your body really does purge itself of, of all of its impurities because you're just sweating like you can't believe. Um, it has a particular kind of effect on you. Um, so it, it's a kind of an interaction of the physical and the and the intellectual. Whereas the, the, the isolation tank, for me at least, um, it was more of an intellectual experience than a right. physical one. It was psychological. Um, you know, and I know that the, the couple of inches of the salty water is supposed to make all mm -hmm. the difference in those tanks. I didn't think that it made a difference to me, but um, I don't know. Maybe it had that different experience for you. I've spent some time when I was younger as a wrestler and not that it's a sweat lodge, but 
you know, depriving myself of food, mm. going into saunas. And there's a there's a certain sort of clarity, the cleansing of the doors of perception, maybe, you know, that, that comes with diet and sweating and heightened states of awareness. Yeah. No, I mean, and that's what all the ascetic right. practices of the of, of the religious life were all about, right? Just denying the body, and in that case, to edify the soul, so that you can have a more pure experience. Um, but I mean, I, people talk about that all the time. I mean, I know when I've done, I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a carbohydrate addict. Um, <laughs> I would have made a terrible wrestler because I, I cannot <laughs> not eat carbs, and carbs are the worst thing for a wrestler. Um, and so, you know, there have been times when I've gone on these carb diets where I don't, where I cut out carbs completely. Well, for the first two weeks, you're the biggest SOB going because you're going through withdrawal. Um, but after that, you do feel a different sense of, of clarity, just mental yeah. clarity and a clearer state of mind. Um, it's just, you know, as is the case with the spiritual life, it's difficult to maintain that. Um, you know, and eventually, you know, you eat a bowl of pasta and you're screwed, which is what happens to me usually. <laughs> yeah. You know, that, there's a really good author, uh, young, young Chul Han. Hmm. And he speaks, uh, he's got a bunch of cool books that speak to this idea of um, the, like the pornographic nature of the uninterrupted message. Like it's just, and that's what, and that's seems, what to seems to happen, happen in the in cities or, or the worlds or we live in. It's just constant bombardment. It is. I mean, it, it, it you know, there's a, a, a guy who years ago um, referred to as data smog. Yeah. Right. And it's, it's just a great way to think about it. Uh, David Shanks was his name. He wrote a book mm. called Data Smog back in the, God, it must have been the 90s. And um, this just this idea that we are, you know, it reminds me of the the the, the robot in short circuit, right? Who is always <laughs> saying input, more input. That's where we're constantly processing, and um, it, it's it's you know it, we're we're seeing slowly through psychological studies that you know that's not a good good yeah. way to operate. Um, it just doesn't. You know, I, I I I taught my first class of the semester last night. And, you know, we were talking about the fact that the course has a lot of reading mm -hmm. and that is going to require that you take time and sit and actually reading a book. And, you know, most people these days are just that that's an activity that's foreign to them. Um, they don't read sustainably. You know, yeah. they read as long as it takes to read something on a phone, usually. And here I'm asking them to read, you know. 40 chapters in the Bible in, you know, for one night. And it's just, you know, how are they going to do that? Um, and so it'll be interesting to see how they handle it every year. It's, it's interesting to see how they approach it. You know, it, I've been doing some research on the evolution of language. And it seems to me that we have really transformed our world. And you can, and you can see it in the use of organic, organic metaphors, metaphors that we used that we to use, use and, and that, that of the mechanistic, mechanistic metaphors, metaphors that we use, that we now. use now. Yeah. You really, really chart it. Chart it. Yeah. I mean, it, it, as we've, we've moved from, you know, what I refer to as an analog world to a digital world. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And um, there's a, a, a good deal to be lost as a result mm. of that. Um, you know, I was talking earlier with a friend of mine who's a librarian and we were talking about the days when you would use all books in the reference room in the library. Well, I mean, those are all gone now because everything's online. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, a lot of libraries don't even have a reference room anymore. Um, they, you know, the, the books aren't up to date, whereas the things they can get online are more up to date. And so they just don't use them anymore. Um, and it was funny because we were on the phone and I was looking up something actually for our talk today. And I wanted to read the, the the uh the entry in the dictionary of national biography on richard roll and so i went on to our i was talking to my friend and i went on to our library catalog assuming that we must have had an electronic subscription to the national that dictionary of national biography it's a fairly standard reference work 
and we don't we actually still have the the paper copy it's old but we have the paper copy somewhere in the library and it was so funny because i was talking to my friend and i said how is it that we possibly don't have this online and she said you're probably the only person who even knows about that thing you know? <laughs> um because people don't use those kinds of reference books anymore everything is through google um and so you know it, it it's also just part and parcel of the 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 instant gratification that we have right the society that we have that demands that um you know we were talking about the fact that if you're sitting around talking about some movie and you're thinking about an actor but you can't remember their name oh just whip out the phone and you'll have it in two seconds you know and oftentimes i'll be sitting with friends and we'll be doing that and i'll say all right wait a minute let's not just immediately look it up on our phones let's see if we can you know let it percolate for a minute it's in there <laughs> You just can't remember it right now. See if you can, you know, and it's it's a memory exercise. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't we don't really do that anymore. Yeah, when you don't use a muscle, it atrophies. Yeah, absolutely. And <laughs> and memory is one of the things that, you know, is really, uh, really, we're, we're losing it. And, you know, on, on the one level, it's okay because, you know, as we've talked about before, the idea of the internet being kind of an extension of our memory um, but the problem with it for me is, as I've often said, we're not doing anything with with what it's freeing up. You know, mm -hmm. it's freeing up our minds for what we hoped was going to be higher level thinking. And most people aren't engaging in that. I, you I are, like to believe yeah. you are on this podcast, though. <laughs> That's why I'm happy you're here. Yeah, yeah. vice versa. You know, there's this interesting idea that I see popping up from time to time. This idea of rewilding, and you can see it in nature. And sometimes I think we're beginning to see it in spirituality. Hmm. You know, when, I, when I read your book, The Seven Deadly Sins, or we have these conversations about mystics, from time to time, I will hear people that I talk to have this spark of creation. And it seems to me... It's a, it's a lot, lot like that, like that spark, spark of divinity. Of divinity. And I, I, I feel like maybe sometimes, sometimes you, have, you to have to lose everything, everything mm -hmm. in order to rewild. Maybe, maybe I'm hopeful that's what we're going to see in this. In this yeah. Point. Yeah, no, I think that's a good way to put it. And I, I think what happens is for a lot of people, that spark is trying to fight its way through. Yeah. Right? Yes. And 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 part of what, what folks like Richard Roll were talking about in the 14th century was readying yourself for that, yep. that experience. Um, and, you know, unfortunately for a lot of people today, they don't ready themselves for the experience. And then when it comes, they either either squelch it or dismiss it. Right. They don't take advantage of it. Um, so, you know, I mean, it, it, it sounds cliche, but, you know, I, I've always got a pad next to me, you know, especially when I sleep. Because yeah. you wake up with these ideas and you want to write them down. You don't want to forget them. And oftentimes, they're those little sparks of things that come to you. Mm -hmm. um, they really are. I, there was, I was writing something the other day, and um, I was driving in the car and thinking about the piece because I was a little stuck with it, and I don't like the where it's at. And I was thinking about a different approach to, to talking about what I was trying to say, and I came up with these three words that work perfectly. <laughs> And so, you know, here I am in the car and, you know, you certainly don't want to write anything down, but I didn't want to lose it because it is, it, it did come as a kind of a spark. Um, and so, you know, as soon as I, I got to, I was driving to the office, as soon as I got here, I, I wrote it down because I didn't want to forget it. <laughs> it's so, I love to hear those stories. For me, it's usually in the bathroom at like three in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, most people, I, I, you know, and I tell this to my students, I mean, most people, the only time that we get to spend really alone yeah. is when you're in the shower. Yeah. Uh, you know, unless you're you're lucky enough to be in there with somebody else. Um, <laughs> that's the only time that we spend by ourselves. So oftentimes people will say, you know, I got this this idea in the shower. It's like, yeah. well, yeah, because you were by yourself. You, you, you know, there was nothing else to do. Um, and, and so the thought came to you. And, uh, you know, maybe we need to take more showers as a, as a culture. I don't know. I don't know if it's magic or tragic that that's the only time we're alone. I think it's, I think it's tragic to be <laughs> honest. Um, you know, be, and, 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 
And by alone, you know, that we have to go to that extreme to be alone, right? To get naked and be in the shower by yourself is the only way that you can be alone. And I mean, you know, we hear people complain, talk about this, you know, mothers have liked to talk about this for years, right? When you have a newborn, it's like the only time I get for myself is when I'm in the bathroom. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's it's sad that that's what it's come to. is that, and I think a lot of it goes back to what you were talking about with just this this incredible noise and the data smog that we have is it's really hard. I mean, you, you can't go anywhere these days and sit and wait for something without seeing people just down the line on their phones. Nobody's able to just sit. Um, you go to a doctor's office and go and look in the waiting room, hmm. right? People are sitting there, they're on their phones. Um, you know, I'm here at a university, right? The students are on their phones, it seems 24-7. Um, it's just it's, it's just an extension of of their of their physical of their physical beings now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really um I don't know, it's it 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 strikes me as as sad. I mean, you know, I mean I, I used to walk around on college campus when when I was in college and you know, the, the most I had was, I remember when the, the, the Sony Walkman came out and that was like revolutionary. <laughs> You're going to be able to walk around and listen to music, right? We didn't even have that before then. Um, and so, you know, the idea now that you can't even just go walk across campus and be, quote unquote, alone with your thoughts. You know, people are on their phones, um, either looking at stuff or, or, or talking to somebody. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting thing. It is. Elaine says here, here, I love the idea idea of rewilding myself. myself. Maybe this is why I I find going going down the veg path and getting my hands in the earth is so healing. healing. Getting away from technology technology is very healing and quieting for the soul. You know? Yeah, that's really, I mean, and I think that's why a lot of people really do love things like gardening right is 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 literally getting back to the earth yeah right and 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 really uh you know understanding that i mean you know they say that that the only way that you really understand um anything about what you eat is if you grow your own food and understand where it comes from Mm -hmm. right we're constantly told that when you sit down to eat something you should think about right where it came from how it got to your to your table and to trace it back Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, the, the, you know, I, I like what Elaine is saying there. And I, yeah. I, I wonder if that Elaine Mason is the same Elaine Mason that I know, but I don't know. Um, she'll text me and let me know. Um, but you know, the, the idea that you can, um, grow your own food is, is so satisfying for a lot of people to be able to, to eat something that came out of your own garden, mm-hmm. you know, and I do like that you know, again, that idea of rewilding myself, it's, it's kind of getting us back to, to a place where we were. Um, what's that line from the, the Crosby Stills Nash song for the Johnny Mitchell Woodstock, uh, got to get back, back to the garden. Right. Um, you know, it, it, it and, uh, you know, she's talking about the garden of Eden, but nevertheless, uh, you know, getting back to the garden. I think there's a strange parallel here. <clears throat> the fact that, to be naked and alone in your bathroom with your thoughts, you have to probably go through four locked doors. Mm. Your, you know, the, your front door, your hallway door, your bedroom door, your bathroom door, and then the sliding shower door. Mm-hmm. Well, what does that say about us? Like you have to be that secure. In order to be alone. Well, because there is some vulnerability there, right? Yeah. I mean, being alone makes you vulnerable. Um, that's why we've always said there's safety in numbers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so uh, there is a vulnerability, which also is is one of the reasons people shun away from it, because it's scary. Um, you know, it, it, it's frightening to be alone with your thoughts for some people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 and I appreciate that. I can understand that. Um, I mean, I've been through that myself, um, periods of time when I experienced, you know, extreme anxiety. And mm-hmm. the last thing I want to do is be alone with myself, but with my own thoughts. Mm. But, um, you know, it, it, it's, 
it's a it's a leap of faith i think that's required to do that to make yourself vulnerable you know it's the whole the trust exercises bit yeah right to trust other people and to know i mean you know i i sit here in the office sometimes and if i want to be alone alone as you say i've got to close the door um and and it's it's not necessarily because I need it to be quieter. It's not much quieter when I close the door. I, there's not a lot of noise here. My my office is in the library. And um, but it's more about the vulnerability of being alone here. And somebody may walk in mm-hmm. and somebody may interrupt me. Um, and you know, you you don't want that. So I mean, there are times when I'll say to my administrative assistant, you know, I just need to close the door for a little bit. And I'll just, you know, sit down in the chair and just just sit there um, just to sit for a little while. And and it's a form of meditation, I guess. But, sure. um, you know, it, it's it's a it's a way of being alone with my thoughts, um, which, you know, again, does make you vulnerable. And think about it from the point of view of an instance like ritual roll hat. If so many of us are afraid to be alone with our thoughts, what does it feel like to be alone with the strange music? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it, it has to be terrifying. It has to be terrifying. And a lot of the mystics do feel that that sense when they have these experiences. I mean, the first thing they do is doubt its veracity right. and think it, it maybe it's the devil trying to... to to tease me and to mm-hmm. to to tempt me um oh it is her and she has an excess of zucchini yeah yeah um hi elaine elena's in wales elena's is one of our oldest friends in swansea wales so borda elaine um and um and uh, it's it, it's and i i lost my train of thought i'm sorry that's okay this the frightening feeling oh yes of the yes. music yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's scary because as human beings, we try to explain it away. And the first our first impulse is to think, I'm crazy. I'm going crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, you know, to be comfortable with the idea that it's that's not that's not what it is. But all of the mystics experienced that. Marjorie right. Kemp did. That's why she didn't want to tell anybody about what happened. Um, Roll is kind of sensitive about sharing what he's what's what he's gone through because you know, it's very personal and he doesn't think anybody's going to understand it because he can't really explain what it's like. Right. That's the other part of it. And we've talked about that with the cloud of unknowing by the ineffable nature of all of this. Right. Right. You have this kind of divine experience. And I mean, it, how do you put that into human words? Right. It's why we have so few accounts of this. Um, these experiences and and you know again if you read Richard Roll or, or go to Thomas Merton and you know Seven Story Mountain read him and or read the the works of the, of the Buddhist monks you know who talk about their experiences is always a struggle to put this into human language. I always fall back on Eliad and think about the terror before the sacred. Yeah, that's just a great way to describe that experience. Like. <gasps> Uh, it's so, so beautiful. beautiful. Yeah. What, what do I do with this? Yeah. Well, it's as we said before, it's awful, right? Yeah, You're full of awe. That. Yeah. Right. Yep. Well, Dave, well, we're coming up on our hour right here. This yes, is sir. so much fun. I love it. Um, I have to put a dollar in my own jar now because I just said that. <laughs> Dang it. My daughter's going to crush me. Okay. Such a great time. I'm so thankful. Perhaps you could tell people a little bit where they can find you, what you have coming up, and what you're excited about. Sure. So my website is David A. Solomon, S-A-L-O-M-O-N.com. Um, links to all of my books and the blog, which I'm getting back to, to writing again, and um, appearances and my consulting. Um, excited. We are beginning a new academic year on campus. Classes began on Monday. And so the students are back. Um, which is always a, a different kind of energy, um, which I certainly appreciate and uh, excited about the, the year ahead and, and uh, as well as my, my, my own teaching. I'm teaching an honors class this semester that I'm also looking forward to. So 
Well, that's what we got for today, ladies and gentlemen. We will be back soon, I'm sure. Thanks, for everybody, for hanging out. And, and if you hear a strange echo, try to think of it as a divine voice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Aloha, everyone. Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge, and I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now, and it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. Think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.